0: Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. After having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they were turned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well done. Might be the best scripture reading of all time. Just you know. Uh, well, Merry Christmas, everybody. right, let's try it again. Merry Christmas, everybody. It's so great seeing everyone today. Actually, Justin and I were joking about how this might be the highest production Adore Cho family morning devotional, but it turned out other people showed up, so it was great to see you and great worshiping with you today. Uh, let me start off uh, today just with, I'm going to be doing a fairly brief uh, just reflection on that passage that Judah just read to us. But let me start off with what's always one of my favorite quotes around this Chris, uh, Christmas time by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says this, Christmas is not only a message of joy, but also fearful news for anyone who has a conscience. It's only when we have felt the frightfulness of the matter that we can know the incomparable favor. Uh, That disruption, uh, that fearful news that the God, the maker, the creator of heaven and earth had to come and visit us, uh, had to take upon himself flesh is not just good news of great joy, but it's fearful news. And I want to reflect a little bit on that uh, today, I picked for our passage today Matthew chapter two, because I thought it was kind of a nice cap to the series that we've been in in uh, looking at the matriarchs, Matthew chapter one. And what I love about this passage is probably my favorite Christmas passage. What I love about it is that Matthew, in these short verses, brings three kings together, and as we see these three kings converge, we're taught a lot about what it means to understand the meaning of Christmas. So we see Herod, the king from the West. Uh, we see the magi the kings from the east, and then we see Jesus, the king from on high. And so let's just look at each of those three kings and reflect, what does this king teach us about the message of Christmas? So first, let's look at the king from the west. This is King Herod. Let me read verses 1 through 3 to you again. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him, Verse three. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem, with him. Uh, a little bit of background on who King Je- King Herod was. Uh, he was a half Jew, half Edomite. Uh, he was a very competent politician. He was a very ambitious man. A lot of historians will say that they called Herod Herod the Great because he restored a lot of what was happening in Jerusalem. A lot of major public building projects were part of his uh, his um, kind of reign during that time. And Herod, in the midst of Roman occupation, had found a way to secure a small corner of the world where he reigned over his own people, uh, where he actually had some measure of sovereign control. Now, the way the Romans tended to rule conquered peoples was rather than sending in Roman magistrates from Rome to rule over these regional areas, they would oftentimes try to find someone from within who was trusted and basically used them to rule. So Herod, in many respects, though competent and capable, was also a puppet king of the empire of Rome. But Herod found his way, that he was an ambitious and achieving type of a person. But all that Herod accomplished came with a price. Because Herod, from the moment he secures his throne, is a man who's constantly looking over his shoulder. And by the time he's into his older age, Genuine paranoia has set in for King Herod to a point where later on in life, he actually ends up having one of his 10 wives executed because he felt like she was conspiring against him. He also had two of his sons strangled. Now stop and think about that. Like what kind of person not only has his own sons killed but strangled? I mean, just a violent, you know, very visceral kind of form of death. And Herod, by the end of his life, had become a person who was constantly afraid that someone was coming for his throne. And that picture of Herod, I feel like Herod is kind of a personification in many ways of a very deep principle of the human heart. And it's this. If you worship power, you will always feel weak. If you worship beauty, you will always feel ugly. If you worship success, you will always feel like a failure. If you worship wealth, you will always feel like you have never have enough. And so here's King Herod secured a kingdom for himself in the midst of a vast empire. He had all this power, and yet he worshiped power, and so he always felt weak. And he was always looking over his shoulder. And so the news of the Magi coming to Jerusalem saying that there's a child who has been born, who was born king of the Jews, is possibly the worst news that King Herod could possibly imagine. And verse 3 captures his response perfectly, doesn't it? It says, And Herod, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. It's a word in the Greek that can mean distraught. In other places, it means terrified. That this was news that King Herod lost incredible sleep over. And we actually see it again in verse 8 where he tells the Magi, he says, tells him, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. But of course, if you know the story, we, knows, we know that Herod is looking for the place where this child was born, not to go and worship, but to essentially plan the death of every boy born under the age of two. This was a man who worshipped power and therefore always felt weak and was willing to do whatever it took to secure that power for himself. Now, you and I might hear that, and it might be easy to dismiss Herod as kind of a crazy king. But I want to suggest to you this morning that Herod actually understands the meaning of Christmas far better than you and I do. We think of Christmas and maybe we think of chestnuts roasting or stockings hung by a chimney with care, silver bells in the city. But Herod understood exactly what Christmas means. Because what Christmas means is that if there is a man who is born king, if there is a child who has been born king, it means that my throne over my own life is about to be overturned. And you and I, we might not be political kings in the same way that Herod is, but we, also, we all seek to be the center of our own little universes, don't we? Uh, that we all want to rule over at a small kingdom of self where we say, yeah, I'm willing to serve in these other ways, but this is the realm, this is the untouchable parts of my life. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's how you use your time or your finances or your possessions. Maybe it's the thing that you say, you know, I've worked hard to earn these things. I'm entitled to this one small thing. That like Herod, we have a kingdom that we want to say, this is ours. This is where we reign supreme. This is where we rule over our own lives. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, if we're honest, a lot of times we just want to add Jesus into our kingdoms so that he will help us to fortify our own power over our lives. We want to use Jesus to secure and consolidate our thrones. We don't want him to call into question our rule. And so we think Christmas means chestnuts roasting and stockings hung and silver bells in the city. Instead of recognizing if Jesus is who he claims he is, he has come to usurp. Your throne in your life. Uh, If you've been with us, you've heard me say this before, but I think it's something I've thought about ever since um, uh, a sermon that I preached many months ago. But Jesus, when he invites you to come and follow him, Jesus doesn't say, Come, let me follow you into your life and help it work better for you. Jesus doesn't say, Come, let me follow you into your dreams and your goals and your desires and help achieve them for you. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he says, come, lay down your nets, and come and follow me on an adventure that you have no control over, on a journey that you will not rule over. He says, come and follow me. And so Herod knows this. He knows far better than we do if Jesus is king, It means that you and I are not. It's the end of our sovereignty over our own lives. And the question for this Christmas morning, for those of you who profess to be followers of Jesus, does your life reflect this kingship? Are there people around you who would look at your life and see that someone else rules over their life, this life? That someone else is in charge that when I touch this person's life, I'm touching a different kingship, a different kind of rule. King Herod understood that, and he responds with violence. And that response, in many ways, is a far more rational response to the message of Christmas than chestnuts roasting over an open fire. Christian, do you understand this? And if you're here exploring, do you understand that if you think about Christianity, that's what you're getting yourself into. And it's important to understand that. So that's the first king that I want us to look at. Uh, This is King Herod, the king from the west. Let's turn now our attention to the Magi, the kings from the east. Let me read verses 1 and 2 to you, and then I'll read also verses 7 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And look, uh, jump down to verse 12. Then Herod called the magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place Rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another route. And these Magi are actually fascinating uh, characters as well. If you do a little bit of the research, the Magi were actually pagan scholars. Uh, So they weren't actually kings. They weren't really wise men either. They were likely uh, best understood as the priestly caste in Old Persia. So one way to think about them is that these Magi were the clergy of Zoroastrianism, which is a faith that continues to this day. So that's who these Magi were. So they weren't wise men, they weren't kings. It's probably better to understand them as mystics even as magicians, as astrologers, and as soothsayers. Now, here's what's incredible. And this is what always fills me with wonder when I think about this passage. Here are these Zoroastrian clergy. That God so loved these Zoroastrian magi that he spoke to them from within their own culture. He used their pagan astrological beliefs to announce the birth of the Savior King. That is utterly and absolutely incredible to me. And commentators will note how during Jesus' time, there was a rare conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn that astrologers looked at and saw with wonder. So here's what one commentator says. Jupiter was the royal planet. So if you know Roman mythology, Jupiter was the king of all the gods. Jupiter was the royal planet. And Saturn was the star of Saturday which at times was associated with the Jews because of their Sabbath observance, the location of this conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn was also in the constellation of Pisces, which is the fish. And that location of this conjunction for many signaled that there was a king born of the Jews, born in the last days, the king of all kings. Now, when you think about the details of that, the fact that God was willing to move the planet and the stars for these Zoroastrian pagan clergy from within their culture to announce the birth of the Savior is absolutely astonishing to me. Now, here's what that means. It means that God will go to any length to make himself known to you. It means that there is no distance that God will not travel to bring you back to him. You see, the Christmas message that we learn from Herod is that Jesus comes to disrupt your sovereignty. He comes to threaten your reign. The lesson that we learn from the Magi is that he loves you enough to meet you exactly where you are. That there is nobody who is beyond the reach of God. God's love. There's a God who's willing to rearrange the stars to come and meet you where you are. Uh, This past week I had lunch with a pastor who was in town and he's starting a ministry to help people to do a lot more outreach, Christians do a lot more outreach, to share their faith in their cities. And he was telling me some of the stories of his own experience. He was saying how in his life God has used him so often to draw other people and lead other people to Christ for the first time. And one of the stories that he tells is just phenomenal. So let me share with you really quickly. So he had moved into a neighbor. He lives in San Diego. And uh, right next door to him is a woman who was a professor of evolutionary biology at the university, an atheist, and like a complete like all religion is nonsense kind of a thing. But he felt like God had placed him there for a purpose. So he befriended this woman and started to become uh, good friends, good neighbors, to a point where she actually ended up joining like an investigative Bible study with him in his living room. And so week over week, she's studying the Gospels, and she came to a point where she said, listen, I can't believe I'm saying this, but all of this stuff is starting to make sense to me intellectually. It's crazy that that even, even came out of my mouth. But all of this stuff is starting to make sense to me intellectually, but I can't get it to go from here down to here. So what am I supposed to do with that? And his response is actually a response that I will never forget now. His response was this. He said... I believe that God wants to reveal himself to you and that God has the power to speak to you in a way you will understand. Let's pray for that. He didn't give him her an intellectual reason. He didn't give her. He says, I believe that God's going to show up for you in a way that you're going to recognize. She was like, all right, I guess we'll pray for that. A couple of weeks later, she came by, and she was a little bit frantic, and came by in the morning and knocked on the door. She said, okay, God, I had this dream last night, and I have no idea what it means. In this dream, there was a dove, and the dove was trapped in this ga- glass cage, and the dove kept on bumping up against this glass, glass cage trying to get out. What, what, what in the world does that mean? And this man, his wife, was, was there, and she responded. She said, well, I don't know exactly what it means, but I know the dove in the Bible represents the Holy Spirit. And it makes me think that God is saying that his spirit is trying to break through and break out into your life and into your heart. That's what I think that means. She's like, okay. And in the midst of this conversation, this is no joke, in the midst of this conversation, in the middle of San Diego, a dove flies by right in between the two of them. Right in the middle of this conversation. And the dove flies by right in the middle of both of them, and they both are just completely flabbergasted. And the dove ends up flying into the house, which has never happened to this family ever before in their entire life. And the dove flies into the house and ends up trying to find its way out and starts to run up against the glass window trying to get out of the house. And so this woman says, all right, God, I guess that's clear. Now, the reason why I share that story, it's dramatic. It's incredible. And I'm not, as a pastor, I'm not promising that God will do that for you or for someone that you love or someone that you're hoping will come to know who Jesus is. But the reason I share that story is that it challenged me to say, do I believe that there is a God who will show up for people? A God who's willing to rearrange the stars and the planets for you. Do I believe in this living God? And that's what we're seeing here. Now, God might not show up in that same way for you. I don't want to set crazy expectations, but I do believe that if you're here and you're seeking or you have a family member, a friend, if you start to pray, God, show yourself. God, show yourself. I believe in a God who's willing to rearrange the stars to make himself known. And that's part of the message of Christmas. God will meet you right where you are. But here's what's amazing about the Magi. They must have been startled to meet the living God through their study of the stars. It might have been utterly shocking to them. But the moment they encounter God in this way, do you know what they do? God meets them exactly where they are. But the moment they meet God, they go on a 900-mile journey through the Arabian Desert. Most people would say that would take at least two months of travel. A 900-mile journey through the Arabian Desert to go find this baby born, the king of the Jews. God will meet you exactly where you are, but he's going to upend your life and send your life in a direction that you never would have imagined. Are you open to that? Are you ready for that? And So that's the second set of kings here. So first, we looked at the king from the west, Herod. Secondly, we reflected a little bit on the kings from the east, the Magi. Third, let's conclude by looking at Jesus, the king from on high. Let me read verses 4 through 6 to you. Again, what I love about this passage is that it comes on the heels of Matthew's genealogy. And if you were an Israelite living during this time, reading that part of Matthew would have felt like you had gone deep into the archives of ancient Israel's history, that you had discovered the thick tome that, can, that had all the chronicles of the ancient Israel, uh, Israel's kings and that you had opened them and that you're peering through all the stories, all the names of these great hero kings that you'd heard growing up as a child. And you would have felt like you're working through this ancient tome, this register of Israel's ancient kings, and you'd remembered back to a golden age of Israel where God had been faithful, where the people were keeping the covenant, where God was blessing the nation of Israel, and you would have gone on this journey, this emotional journey, only to look up and look around and see, no, but now everything is in ruins. God seems to have left us. We haven't heard from God in thousands of years. It was once the light golden age. Everything is in darkness today, that our nation is occupied. Our people are subjugated. The king who reigns over us is not even the true king of Israel. And your heart would have sunk with despair and discouragement. And you would have said there was a better time. There was a golden age. And even as you read that register, the thing that would have brought you hope is you would have also thought about the prophecies. And you just said, now it's a dark time, but there's a promise. All the prophets of old promised a time when a ruler would be sent from God. When the true king over all kings would come. That God would one day send us a promised child who would restore Israel, who would restore glory, who would forgive his people, who would restore all the nations. And you would remember these prophecies of a King king who's not only worshipped in Israel, but a king worshipped by all the nations. That people from all cultures, tribes, and tongues would come and be drawn to this king from on high. That they would climb to the top of Mount Zion. And the kings of the nations would come streaming into the king over all kings. And would come bearing the riches of their culture and of their nations. Would come bearing gifts to this great king over all kings. And your heart would have been stirring for the day when God would send someone who would draw all peoples to himself. The day when God would send someone where even Zoroastrian magi would be brought to him. A child who was born where even tax collectors and zealots would come. Where fishermen and Pharisees would come where Samaritans and centurions would come, where Ethiopian eunuchs, where Greek philosophers would come, where 2,000 years later, even New Yorkers in East Harlem in 2022 would come to this king, and he would draw all people to himself, and he would initiate a new world order. And this would be your hope. This would be the hope that you're looking for. Now, if you were that person opening this ancient register of Israel's kings, where would you go to look for this king who was born king over all kings? Well, you would go exactly where the Magi went. This king from on high. Where would you go? You'd go right to the capital city, you'd search the mountaintops. You'd go to the palaces that are fit for kings. You'd go to the great halls of power. You'd climb Mount Olympus, as it were. You'd go to the high places and say, where is this king who's going to be born over all kings? That's exactly where the Magi went. And the Magi went to the temple, went to the palaces, and learned that the child was not born here. And in fact, this child was seen as a threat here in these halls of power. And so with the Magi, you would have followed a star away from the places of power. You would follow followed a star that would take you away from the lights of the capital and into the darkness of a small town on the outskirts of Judea. You'd follow a star that would actually take you to the wrong side of the tracks in Bethlehem, into the poor part, the dangerous part of that city, into a stable and you'll be brought to a baby born of a virgin, born amidst animals in the dirt in the midst of poverty. And I love imagining this scene because the the Magi, I would imagine, came in their Sunday best. They probably wore the best clothes they could find because they're going to meet a king. And I imagine them coming with their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh and them all of a sudden coming to the stable of poverty. And just feeling super awkward, like how out of place they must have felt to walk into this place of poverty. And even as they offered their gift, it must have felt so almost inappropriate because of where they were. That all those gifts seemed so not fitting for this environment, except for one. Gold was reserved for kings alone. Frankincense was burned in the temple priests, and, uh, tem- in priests' temples in capital cities. But the one gift that actually fit this stable far more than they knew when they brought it was the gift of myrrh. Myrrh was used during that time. It was an expensive substance, but it was used to relieve great suffering, and it was used to preserve dead bodies. And so the Magi come dressed all wrong, overdressed for the party. They come with these gifts, feeling awkward about what they've brought. But the one gift that spoke far better than they knew they were speaking was this gift of myrrh because they were coming to a king who would one day suffer and die and would be raised again from the dead. The next time we read about myrrh in any of the Gospels, remember where it is? Jesus hanging on a cross is offered myrrh mixed with wine to relieve his pain. And in John chapter 20, we hear that after Jesus has died, Joseph of Arimathea brings myrrh to, to season his body after he has died. Christmas is the message of a king who will disrupt your sovereignty. He comes to challenge and threaten your sovereignty. Christmas is a message that says God will go to any length. He will move the stars for you to reveal himself to you. But ultimately, Christmas is the message that the length that God will go to is to suffer and die in your place so you can be forgiven, so you can be set free, so you can receive his life. So friends, today, this Christmas, let's come to this Savior. This Christmas, let's come, all ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. But also come, all ye doubting, disturbed, and hurted, hurting. Come, let us adore him, the dying king, the suffering king, the risen king, the reigning king. So let's now come to his table as we prepare to receive the bread and the cup. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are the king to end all kings. We thank you that when you came, the king that we needed was not a king of power and might, a king of victory and conquest, was not a king of judgment. What we needed was a king of mercy. And on this Christmas morning, We remember that's that's exactly what you have given to us. And so, Lord, as we come to this table, would you take our breath away again as we consider the miracle of the creator stepping into time, of God in all of his riches emptying himself into complete poverty, the God of life stepping into the grave, all for us. And so would you open our eyes and our ears and our hearts as we approach this table to receive the bread and the cup, your body broken and your blood poured out. We pray all this in Jesus' name.
0: Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.